Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Home Abstract and Title Company was founded in 1867 and is the oldest company still operating in McLennan County. Home Abstract is comprised of a team of honest, friendly, hardworking professionals dedicated to providing both commercial and residential real estate clients with the highest level of communication and service. Their team is committed to working hard and building and maintaining strong relationships because transactions are so much more than just deals. They are clients deserving of the courtesy, care and respect that home abstract and title company is known for visit home abstract and title company at homeabstract.com cross the brazos and waco i'm safe when i reach San Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. We are going through our Crossroads series, right, Rick? How many we, episodes we, in are we? We are going through it, let me tell you. I think we're getting uh, we're getting. It's, it up. takes two hands right now to it, count it, how it many does. we've the, done. We've done this many. Uh, yes. That works great for uh, podcast world. Uh, but we are uh, diving into two episodes that we're going to do on uh, arts and entertainment in Waco. Waco is a arts and entertainment crossroads. And we have a special guest for our first one. We're going to focus on places and venues. Uh, places and, and spaces. It's got to rhyme. Make that, it rhyme a that, little bit. That's nice. Okay. Uh, places and spaces uh, for uh, arts and entertainment in Waco. And who is our guest, Rick? Fiona Bond. Hi, guys. Thanks Hello. for inviting me. Yes. Well, um, for our listeners, the first thing you'll notice, if you don't know Fiona, is she doesn't sound like she's from around she here. from around here. <laughs> and you're expecting me to talk about history. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, give our listeners some background on you, kind of where your accent comes from, and uh, how you ended up in Waco. I say I'm from very far east Texas. Um, so obviously I'm originally from the UK. And um, been in Waco now for about uh, just over 10 years. And it is my privilege to be CEO of Creative Waco, which means I get to do the cultural development piece of life and work in our city and our community. So I'm really intrigued with what I might learn by this conversation with you guys. And I've discovered all kinds of interesting things about the places and spaces that have been part of Waco's story, especially as a cultural crossroads. Wow. And, and she's using good uh, name placement already. I mean, that's a good sign. That's right. Yeah. Uh, brought to you by Brotherwell Brewing. Uh, nothing goes better with spaces and places and entertainment than a beer from Brotherwell Brewing. I'm going to yes. say specifically the Waco town because it supports Creative Waco. <laughs> oh, see, there you go. There is a tie-in. Nice tie-in. There is totally. a tie-in. Okay, <laughs> well, let's start. Let's, uh, let's, let's start talking about early Waco, right? So um, 1850s, the, uh, the the culture of Waco is is starting it's actually people are just trying to live they're just they're just trying to eke out a living so yeah entertainment is not a top priority yeah uh, in 1850s waco at um, least not high art entertainment i mean I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing there was plenty of singing plenty of saloons and shooting and all kinds of bars <laughs> and vittles well and, and and you know i know if you're, you're taking a negative uh, approach here but but there was a lot of church who's going. saying that's negative <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's just a good weekend uh, <laughs> Okay, well then I really do need to talk about it. There was church going and uh, revivals, reunions. You know, th there was uh, people were getting together and they were being entertained. And you did bring up uh, singing. It, it's interesting to watch period movies and how much people just broke out in song when they were together. Right? I mean, that was that was so much more a part of life. Um, Some of those are musicals, Rick. I mean, <laughs> maybe you're talking about Oklahoma. I mean, that's not a documentary. It's, you clearly hang out with, you know, more interesting people than me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, it, it was more of kind of a pitch perfect thing. But the the um, no, people would sit around and entertain themselves and each other 
by playing instruments and singing. Yeah. You know? well, I mean, it wasn't. And I love that that already picks up a strand that I've noticed in some of the historic things that I've looked at with the arts in Waco, that a lot of the things that we now have our sites set on are things that have their deep roots here too. So yeah. church music, for example, is something that has always been mm-hmm. something that Waco has had mm-hmm. standout skill and expertise and you know something that we've punched above our weight as a small community in the fact that we now have at Baylor and at MCC really standout music programs and that the um, church music program and the black um, gospel music program mm. yeah. are internationally known. They have their roots right yeah. there in those early churches. Right. And when we, when we, uh, in further episodes where we do start talking about actual personalities, I mean, New Hope Baptist Church had a lot of, mm-hmm. of talent that came from, from the roots of that, that, uh, that institution. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, yeah. So, uh, in fact, in fact, one character I will, uh, I will recognize here, you see, uh, in the writings a lot, uh, early Waco and pictures and photos and stuff was, was a fiddle player named uncle Dan McLennan. So, um, th- this guy, he was born as a slave to the Neil McLennan family. And then after the civil war, it was a freedman, um, but stayed close to the family. He, you know, I think he farmed with them and, um, you know, really, uh, I think he, he didn't end up passing away till into the 1900s, but he was known as a great fiddle player and he would get hired to do all these reunions and get togethers that we were talking about. And eventually his sons would play with him as well. Um, so th- there, there was talent there, you know, it was just different in how it was expressed as, as opposed to how we would do it now. He, he wasn't uploading songs to Spotify. Well, and I'm guessing at that time there weren't places that were built dedicated for the performing arts. Mm. I mean, we're looking at very kind of um, things that are popping up as part of people gathering in other kinds of spaces. Right, Mm. right. Um, Yeah, there's that that, uh, movie that Tom Hanks recently did that was uh, called News to the World. Uh, It's a great depiction. shows him traveling actually through Texas, through our part of Texas. And basically he was a news reader. He would take take the news of the day and go from community to community and share it. And um, um, so those activities were going on, but oration was a much bigger part of people's lives. You know, you, you, you read about certain individuals and them being great orators, kind of a lost art. I mean, we have people who are good public speakers now, but you know, they, they talk about crowds of thousands coming to listen to someone speak and, and there was no magnification or, or whatever audio equipment to mm. uh, amplify their voices. I mean, they were, projecting uh, in out in the open to these thousands of people. I think it's really I'm, cool. I'm guessing that's a mixed blessing if you have bad news to share. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that would change the kind of news that we would be faced with if uh, it had to be presented in that way now. Yes. Well, since he was uh, getting paid for it, I bet he, I bet he brought a lot of good news, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you before we started recording, Fiona, you talked about powwows, you know, that would have been would have predated settlement and all these mm-hmm. spaces that would have been spaces of uh, entertainment, cultural transmission, all those sorts of things. I've I've come to uh, to know um, some of the folks that are in the Wichita and affiliated tribes and their leadership, and they talk about how you know Waco, because of its location and because it was a strategic crossing of the river, was a place that different tribes, different family groups would come to. And so you know, probably as long as there have been humans in this area, it's been a gathering place. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that I really love because I think that's very much Waco's personality now mm-hmm. is as a gathering place and the. I'm really curious what that looked like over different time and with different cultural groups, because it really has been a cultural crossroads. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that is most fascinating. And that also gives us this really lovely, rich, diverse cultural um, infrastructure now. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, um, before we jump out of the 1800s or move move more towards the uh, wow, that's like a whiplash. We can't jump out of the 1800s. <laughs> well, I know, but I was going to say, I think when we talk about in the 1870s, the Chisholm Trail kicks up, the bridge is here, it becomes a major crossing for uh, the cattle drives. Then we get Camp MacArthur, and suddenly there are more people, yeah. to entertain. Yeah, yeah, there there are, um, and less of the bawdy stuff because that actually 
meant the closing down, I think, of some of the right, more but, risque entertainment. But, but you do, there, there, is a, there is kind of a, um, a, a good comparison between cattle drive, you know, cowboys and soldiers. <laughs> they do, at a base level, look for some of the same entertainment. I mean, there were a lot of saloons and in, in billiard halls in Waco. You can find that in their, their advertisements in the handbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were bathhouses and natatoriums and, you know, places where you go, you know, get cleaned up if you've been on the trail for days at a time. Um, yeah. So I think there was a lot of that and, and, and the reservation, which has been talked about on this podcast uh, a few times, you know, there was. That's right. Illicit entertainment, but it was legal. So it wasn't illicit. It was legal. Yeah. One of the two uh, cities in America to make it legal. Yeah. Um, So I, I think of the big kind of event that makes Waco a crossroads as far as a destination for, People coming in uh, from out of town for entertainment and the arts. I guess I think of the Cotton Palace, the mm. Texas Cotton Palace, uh, which starts yeah. in 1894. I mean, that seems like a landmark. Yeah. If we're going to talk about a place and a space, that seems really important here. And and here we're talking about an era of huge exhibitions being such a big pull. Yeah. I mean, these become destinations, right? I'm thinking of the Crystal Palace in London. I'm the thinking World's the World's mm-hmm. Fair, yes. All of those kinds of things where people will travel, they'll make it their family vacation to travel to one of these places. How visionary to have something like that in Waco. Yeah, so first Cotton Palace, it's not a happy story. Uh, it, <laughs> Governor Hogg comes. It's dedicated in the fall of 1894. It burns to the ground in January 1895. So the first Cotton Palace uh, is a success, but also a quick tragedy uh, for the city. Uh, And, of course, we'll we'll talk about when we get to the 20th century, the revival of the Cotton Palace, which is really important. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so before we get to the second Cotton Palace, I, I want to talk about, and, and we were, Fiona's brought us some wonderful artifacts from the Waco Auditorium. Maybe tell folks about the Waco Auditorium, Fiona. Yes. Well, um, so this is courtesy of my friend Laurie Davidson, who actually runs the Waco Trolley. So quick shout out and thank you to, to Laurie. She gave me this souvenir program for the dedication of the new auditorium in Waco, Texas, knowing that Creative Waco is working on potentially a new performing arts center. So this was December 1st, 1899. And this was a brand new, huge performing arts center, which really was one of the largest performing arts centers west of the Mississippi at that time. And um, 3,000 seats. Yes, this was, I mean, it was an incredibly bold and um, visionary thing uh, to build in Waco. At the time, it did not have a population that would have made that an obvious thing to do. But of course, with Camp MacArthur there and... Um, uh, well, the, not yet. Camp MacArthur uh, didn't come till... Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry, that few, was slightly few, later. But I think at later. that point, there was already um, a very uh, rising, yeah. rapidly growing population. Yeah. I think we had seven railroad connections at that point. There were there were great hopes still. This is before the, uh, the lock and dam failure out on the Brazos. Right, there was right. great hopes that... You know, had the navigators playing. <laughs> we had great hopes that the the Brazos would be navigable. Yeah. So in in when it's finished in 1899, the hopes for the city and it's Waco's only 20,000 at that point. Yeah. The hopes for the city are by 1910, Waco would be 60,000 people. Wow. Um, it's gonna miss that mark. It does become 60,000 people, but after World War II, so they they miss the mark a little bit, and so I think. Within a couple of years, the auditorium, even though it's a, a grand venue, they have to cut the capacity in half uh, just because of the attendance that occur. Right. But nobody, but, nobody likes sitting in a show that's not sold out, right? I mean, it's just not the energy's not there. Well, Fiona can probably tell us the the, <laughs> the sustainability level of uh, an auditorium in in Waco right now, well, which is around two thousand. <laughs> and I don't mean to geek out too much, but you put three thousand people in any one room together. Pre-air conditioning, it's going to get pretty hot and sultry pretty pretty fast. It all comes back to air conditioning. It does. And, and as, <laughs> the history uh, of the South, driven by well, air conditioning. And, and for our listeners who don't know, there is a whole episode on the uh, how Waco got cool, but um, we won't go into that right now. 
But I will say, in modern terms, I mean, a 3,000-seat auditorium needs a couple hundred tons of air conditioning just to make it um, feasible to sit in there. So so you can imagine uh, it, they they had a lot of ventilation that they would use, but there's only certain times of the year you could put that many people in there and it'd be comfortable. Dark red velvet covered seats. Sounds warm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, you do not want to sweat into those. Um, the... <laughs> <laughs> so there's this fantastic story. Uh, by 1915, um, the person who was running the auditorium was a character who I really wish I could have met named Gussie Oscar. Gussie was a woman and uh, she was arrested twice for the um, absolutely shocking crime of conducting a business um, and, and having performances on a Sunday. Oh, my gosh. And um, she clearly was, um, I mean, she sounds like a real opportunist and apparently ran an extremely tight ship and strict business. But um, she sounds like she was a fairly uh, interesting character. Yes. She, yeah, yeah, capitalist. She, she would tour New York and bring back kind of talent uh, mm-hmm. to come to Waco. And she got in, as you say, hot water for performances on Sunday, but also some of the acts. Uh, that she brought back um, that some of the, you know, chorus girls. Lowered the tone a little. Yeah, uh, flappers, you know, some, some some of the things she brought back that maybe New York mm-hmm. was ready for, but mm-hmm. uh, Waco was challenged uh, to support. Well, and we've talked about before in the economics crossroads what a big shot in the arm Camp MacArthur was when World War One came. So you bring 30,000, 40,000 young soldiers to your town they're looking for entertainment. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, I think that was really the, the apex of Waco auditorium from, from all indications. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, uh, closes, uh, as Fiona reminded me earlier in 1928 and it's, it's raised in 1929. They convert it to show silent movies at one point. Birth of birth of a nation is, is shown in, uh, the Waco auditorium. Uh, a lot of personalities we will save that for our personalities and entertainment. Uh, episode, but a lot of personalities are going to appear at the Waco Auditorium. Uh, yes, all kinds of know. famous people went through there, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's really interesting to see that when when Waco did invest in something that was um, that much of a, a destination as a, an auditorium, it really became a focal point, not just for Waco, but for the whole region, even at a time when it was much harder to travel from somewhere like Dallas or Fort Worth or Austin mm-hmm. to Waco. Um, And it was right there on North 6th Street and Columbus Avenue. So it was right in the heart of downtown on that hill. So it would have been visible, I'm guessing. Yeah, so so to give you you a a, a location marker there. So that'd be right across the street from St. Paul's Episcopal Church Mm. and catty corner from the jail that sits behind um, the courthouse right Mm -hmm. there, that, that intersection, one one, uh, that's that's maybe a strong been. metaphor as well as a strong location. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot going on in that corner. <laughs> <laughs> right between the church and the jail. <laughs> so the over, arts often inhabits that space. <laughs> <laughs> so over 2,400 2, performances over the life of this this twenty eight year life of of the Waco Auditorium. So definitely a central place in the entertainment and art scene in Waco for a long time. Which, uh, ironically, that's a pretty short lifespan for a building, 30 years of this nature. And, and looking at, you know, the the pictures of it, the visuals, it was very pleasing, eye-pleasing building architecturally. And uh, it's a shame that it didn't survive. It, it actually looks like it might have been designed to complement the Cotton Palace building. I mean, there are some, there are some similarities yeah. between the shape yeah, yeah. of the two. I think you're right, yeah. And, and listener, as you uh, say, I want to see it, go over to the Waco History app and you can see pictures of the uh, Waco Auditorium. And mm. we can maybe post pictures of this uh, program We can. That, uh, that Laurie passed me. And actually, I realized I made a mistake earlier. I was saying Friday, December the 1st, 1899. Actually, it was Thanksgiving, Thursday, November the 30th and Friday, December the 1st. So it was, you know, it was over the Thanksgiving uh, break that they launched this. Governor Hogg came back. William Jennings Bryan was there, mm-hmm. frequent failed presidential candidate, but uh, uh, <laughs> that was foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm seeing Houdini, Will Rogers, Marx Brothers, mm-hmm. so many people that are now household names mm-hmm. came through. 
and and it's of course uh, contemporary with the second Cotton Palace, the Cotton Palace that uh, reopens in 1910. Yeah, and so similar to to what we were just talking about with the auditorium, there was a big push in in the business community of Waco. Again, I think they saw the economic development potential here, not not just the cultural opportunity, but um, and so there was a push to uh, to raise funds to revive the uh, the Cotton Palace and. Uh, they um, ended up building. They were able to raise enough money, so in 1910 they could uh, they could open the new Cotton Palace with a new coliseum that could hold as many as 10,000 people in wow. the uh, exhibit building. It uh it also as it built out it they had a had race tracks they had uh, had a racetrack barns carnival grounds eventually a Ferris wheel and a roller coaster and uh, and then uh, several years later they added an 18 thousand seat uh, athletic field wow yeah which we've talked about before in the in the um, baylor uh, in the episode about the death at the baylor a&m uh, game that was played uh, there in the 20s uh, at the cotton palace so who would have been going to the cotton palace and how often would it have been open would it have been a little bit like our extra co-center exactly. now where it would have been fairs showgrounds that kind of thing the uh the, it May, its main focus was tied around the harvest harvest time in the fall. The Cotton Palace would be open, and but you, but it's drawing in uh, spectators from far and wide. Um, the record attendance the Cotton Cotton Palace, which still blows my mind. I mean, just just so you'll know, this is in an era where Waco's population is about forty thousand uh, in nineteen twenty. In nineteen eighteen, uh, the uh, Texas Cotton Palace draws 547,000 people uh, to mm-hmm. attend, which is unbelievable. I mean, we, yeah, yeah, let's put that, let's put that in context. That is more people than come to a full seasons of Baylor football games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and, and it's it was remarkable. A, it yeah. was a two week exhibition to, to answer that question a minute mm-hmm. ago. So that was within two weeks mm-hmm. getting, you know, half a million people through Waco. Um, and, and you look, uh, you see some, I mean, they were advertising all over the state. They would put advertisements on trains as they were going through the state and had special, um, uh, you know, special runs of those trains coming to Waco for this event. So it, it was a, it was a pretty coordinated effort to, to get that many people here in such a short amount of time. Wow. And I, I imagine it was a major economic driver when it happened as well, that this was something that was really seen as being a win and and was reputationally um yeah significant for Waco. Yeah. It it also, you know, we kind of listed some of the amenities on the grounds, but they were also uh the, the events themselves, there were there were pageants, there were balls and dances, uh, there was a parade that went with it. Uh you know, it was a whole series of events that uh you know, made it a, a an exhibition or spectacle or, you mm. know, thing to go do, um, for many reasons, you know, appealed to different ages for different reasons. And at the, at the event, there were just like, you'd think of the world's fair exp- exhibitions, you know, there would be shows of horticulture and machinery, uh, livestock, um, you know, so you could go and wander the grounds and look at all these latest and greatest things that were coming out. Yeah, and just because you did a good job positioning where we would find the auditorium. So the Cotton Palace is a 12-acre plot uh, bordered by Clay Avenue, Dutton Avenue, South 16th Street. So there's a, there is a little park there on Clay uh, that, is, that contains kind of the last remnants of the Cotton Palace Park. There's a little, there's a little bridge that goes across the creek right there. Mm-hmm. And you can see remnants of a little fountain there. And if you kept going up the grand walkway, you would see the exposition building, kind of where Cesar Chavez Middle mm-hmm. School is now. And so that that's the area that would have been the Cotton Palace. Now, obviously, this was built um, post-emancipation. And mm-hmm. um, one of my questions is, you know, I'm guessing at this point Waco is still segregated. And mm-hmm. so, you know, who was... Did that, I'm sure that must have made a difference as to who was in there and who was participating in the activities there. Yeah, you would have had, uh, you would have had, um, 
different access for whites and blacks as far as areas that they could have access to uh, and areas that they could, you know, elements of the events that they could take part in. And I guess I asked that because mm-hmm. um, I'm thinking cotton was associated as a crop with slavery. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't know how much that played into that that image um, of the cotton palace in Waco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at that point, uh, a, lot of, you know, a lot of the African-Americans, um, if they were still farming, they were tenant farmers and uh, they were still participating in, in agriculture uh, at that level. Um just maybe a, a little bit of an unfair system, <laughs> uh, some would say. Uh, so, so cotton was still really important to, to all, all peoples, all cultures. It just uh, had different outcomes for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that's true of, you know, most of the um, performing arts and entertainment spaces yeah. in, in this town, just wanting to acknowledge that because, you know, that's, um, that's a really significant part of how people would have felt they could participate in mm-hmm. arts and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I know we're not talking about personalities on this one, but as we move forward, <laughs> the ironic thing, the ironically beautiful thing is that many of the, the, the best known personalities to come out of that for Waco were from the African-American culture. Okay, you guys are stealing from the personalities <laughs> <I'm sorry>. episode. <laughs> hey, so back, back, no, yeah. no, signposting. I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, way yeah, to say yeah. it. Laying yeah. the breadcrumbs. We're building up. Okay, so... So uh, you were just talking about the actual the actual space over there that uh-huh. that that still exists. I went and walked it before this episode because where we're where we're recording here at Rogue Studios is about a block away. That is right from where wow. that where the Cotton Palace was. And so similar to what you just talking about, I walked across the bridge, saw this old fountain dedicated in 1910 by the Floral Society, and there's just kind of a remnant of it there. It's kind of sad. <laughs> I bet it was beautiful in the yeah. day, but then. Um, Cesar Chavez is a modern school. I mean, it was, it's been built in the last decade or so. Uh, but the next to it is the stadium or is, is their track and, and uh, mm-hmm. football field. Mm. But if you look closely at it, you can still see the concrete and uh, steel abutments that, that was the original field that hasn't changed that track and field. Oh, is the legacy the field. So is, the school inherited that footprint. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The bleachers have been torn down. Uh, you know, there's some buildings there that look aged enough to still have been maybe from this era wow. that, you know, they're just shuttered up now. Uh, it was beautiful because when I was driving by looking at, you know, school is after school was out, but there were still kids out there practicing soccer on that field. And I'm like, man, the history on that field. And, you know, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. And these kids still out there trying to improve their skills and get better. And I'm like, they don't even... They probably don't realize how long this did field you start shouting that at I them? Did. I said, <laughs> Waco History Podcast, get on it now. No, I didn't do that. But um, how about that? An, an amenity that is still in use mm-hmm. today for its original purpose. Yeah, that's wow. crazy. Well, and speaking of which, so the Hippodrome is then built shortly after that, right? 1914. Mm-hmm. The Hippodrome is built and um, has obviously gone through a variety of iterations and uses and um, repurposes. But um, how great that we still have that space, which was built for performing arts and, you know, for movies and is still used for those purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we've talked about before in uh, 1928, they had a fire that, that gutted it and gave them an opportunity to uh, renovate and rebuild it. And that's when they added, guess it, guess it, come on. What did <laughs> they add? Ta- are you talking about the Hippodrome? Yeah, the Hippodrome. Oh, it's where they added the, I don't know. What's Air the- conditioning. You get out. Oh. You get an F. Oh, I was going to say you the bar. That's, that's, that's where my mind goes. That, but. Yeah. <laughs> And they, and, they, and they had a bar for you know. They probably always had that. <laughs> but there, of course, this is an era where there are a host of movie theaters. I mean, yeah. you talk about a business that has become centralized over the years. There's mm-hmm. a host of spaces where you could see movies and some that support uh, spaces for African-Americans to see movies. And, so the Alpha yeah, Theater. Mm-hmm, Alpha Theater up on Clifton Street. Mm-hmm. And then so. also what we now have is the Jubilee Theater, which mm-hmm. was also a movie theater and then a vaudeville and risque uh, theater. <laughs> yeah, what were you? What, I don't know what I was going to say. That's a fancy there. UK word. <laughs> <laughs> so proper. Uh, you know, we, uh, I think the gym down on Bridge Street, I mean, there were, and of course, 
Uh, later on, we're going to transition to drive-ins. Uh, there's the Joy mm. Drive-In out on Old the Dallas circle. Highway. Yeah. And the Circle Drive-In, which, of course, uh, still has life, uh, a commercial life. Well, and I've got city. a little bit of information on the Circle Drive-In. I think it's interesting. If you Lay don't. it on me. Yeah, so it opened uh, June 21st, 1946. First movie, The Bandit of Sherwood Forest. Oh, bravo. Yeah, don't know a thing about that one. But <laughs> I think it's a Robin Hood movie. Right. I, I would guess. And then uh, the, the no 60s. singing in that. The 60s, the 60s uh, started to see the decline in a whole, as, as the whole for that genre, the drive-in movie, um, because of competition for uh, from air-conditioned theaters. Man, that's kind of a theme. And uh, that could they could only but, but if here, you make it one. But here's the beauty: they could operate day or night. Whereas a drive-in theater, you could only run at night. And mm-hmm. if the weather was bad, people didn't show up. But you can go in a building and you're fine. Also, contributing factors: the VCR. Yeah, of course, yes. and maybe some safety features of cars that made it harder to snuggle on the front seat. <laughs> yeah, that they started putting those center consoles in bucket seats. Getting killed of- the drive-in. Bench seats. And that's that's for just love. hypothesis. And seriously, yeah. gas prices, right? So you didn't want to sit there and idle your car for three hours in the 70s when you were um, shelling out for gas. Um, so uh, as that uh, circle drive-in, it switched to more slasher and X-rated flicks uh, as soon as the family stopped coming and you know, just kept going downhill from there. Eventually closed in the 80s, uh, or closed in 1980, actually, um, Mm-hmm. And has life today as a flea market. Yeah. Oh, there, which is mm-hmm. very uh, active on the weekends. Yes. Had some great finds there. Yeah. There very are cool some great finds. Um, I'm really fascinated by the fact, you know, we, we know that the Waco Auditorium was torn down in 1929, and it's in 1930 that Waco Hall is built. Oh, you want, it makes you wonder if that was a coincidence. Well, I bet, I'm guessing I bet they knew that they were obsolete. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing that, you know, by then it was probably much more obvious that it was Baylor that needed to have a performing arts space. And I know it was part of the city's relationship with Baylor. You know, it was a it was part of a, the sweetener to keep Baylor in Waco. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing there was maybe a collision of need with opportunity there. Also, if we're worried about the propriety of acts that are coming to the theater, oh, perhaps let's yeah. put Baptist it where the Baptists can watch <laughs> who's going on stage and who's not going on stage. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. This is all speculation, but it'd be really interesting <laughs> to talk to the city leaders at the time to to know how much of that really went into the decision making. Yes, Gussie can't uh, can't do her thing. <laughs> I'm guessing Gussie didn't get uh, get hired on over at Waco Hall. Gussie Oscar, no, she was. Yeah, so they built that in 1930 with $400,000 in donations um, and it, from, from, it, it's from pretty, people in the city of Waco. It's mm. pretty remarkable that almost 100 years later, I mean, it was 2,200 seats at the time, which is, again, a grand. I mean, that's for mm-hmm. Baylor. That's a that's a huge haul at that mm-hmm. point. Uh, it's amazing that it still suits, I mean, that it's still a viable space for large crowds now, almost mm-hmm. 100 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was the people who built it really did future think. You know, they they future proofed it in in many ways that I think are really um, were really prescient. But it still makes a very good performing arts center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, twenty two hundred. I mean, that's probably bigger than the student body of Baylor at the turn of the at century. At the time, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, in course, I I can't think of. Waco Hall and Waco without mentioning the Waco Symphony Orchestra and their long relationship with Waco Hall as their performance space. Well, and that's a really good point because Mm -hmm. spaces tend to create opportunity. And, you know, a lot of the flourishing um, that we've seen is because of the spaces that were created. And um, we're now seeing that, um, you know, taking the story back over to East Waco, the fact that we now have an outdoor um, amphitheater on Bridge Street, which, of course, was you know, right in the vicinity of where Walker's Auditorium was, you know, was, was once. And we can talk about that in a minute, too. Um, but that has created an opportunity for us to start doing live performances around music it's it's allowed us to attract grants that kind of thing which means that we're just about to launch the levitt amp concert series over there on that new amphitheater um but 
I wonder how many things in our community have ended up happening like the symphony because we built the spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just because the space was there uh, and presented the opportunity. That's a good point. I know that from the flip side, one of the strongest reasons to think about a new performing arts center is the fact that now we actually are constrained in what we can do because everything's at capacity. And so we actually don't have the spaces to do certain kinds of presentations like Broadway style shows or mm -hmm. um, operas or ballets and that kind of thing um, just because of the the economic configuration it requires and the amount of space and all of that kind of thing. Um, there's a whole study in that if anyone's interested. <laughs> um, but going back to the Walker Auditorium, that itself became this incredible opportunity. And there we have some of the most famous African-American performers performing in our community. I'd love to know more about the Walker Auditorium. I'm seeing 1945 it mm -hmm. started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Herbert Walker was a fixture in, in the African-American business community. He had a stables, he had a taxi cab company. Um, you know, I think we've talked about this on an episode before about segregation did present the opportunity for black entrepreneurs to yeah. to to have businesses. And so Herbert Walker was very active in doing that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Walker Auditorium was one expression of that. I mean, there was a barbecue pit attached to it at one point. He had several businesses that he operated. Uh, but I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Herbert Walker's daughter oh, uh, and doing an oral history with her and her and her two sons, uh, shared a lot of stories of Walker Auditorium. In fact, uh, Charlotte Floyd Love is her name, uh, and I interviewed her and her two sons. And she talked about uh, uh, being a kid. Her father would not let her go to the auditorium, but she would dial in on the phone and listen to the acts. <laughs> it would keep her out of that space, mm. but she could stay at home and enjoy all the wonderful acts. Live streaming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's well. exactly yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and there were some great acts that went through there. Well, and it was part of the Chitlin circuit. And I know that, you know, when we were building out the case for um, the grant that is supporting the Levitt Amp um, concert series, that was one of the things that we said was we would love to honor the past, present, and then future aspirations of East Waco as a hub for, especially for music. Yeah, so, so some of those performers included uh, Ike and Tina Turner. James Brown, B.B. King, Etta James. Wow. Um, yeah, some, I don't know where they were in their careers when they came, if they were at the start or if they were, uh, you know, well-known at the time. But, man, what a, what a yeah, great group. So um, cool. And I know that, you know, Classy Baloo, whose family goes on performing in, in this community, um, sadly he passed away last year. But um, he, he moved because of that venue and, yeah uh, yeah he became again, the we, leader of the house band right 18 uh, 1963 he joined the house band and stayed wow. uh, there and performed at Incredible. walker's till it closed in the 70s uh, just to kind of situate where, where uh, walker auditorium is it's actually out a little bit out clifton street so if you can go out to kind of the corner of clifton and faulkner and in the v there you'll actually see still see cinder blocks where the walls of uh Walker Auditorium was at one point. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, uh, you talked about the importance of the African-American community, but it didn't just draw folks from the African-American community because out on that side of town at the time, we had Conley Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. Of course, the students at the different colleges that were here. I mean, I think it was it was attended by a large swath of, of Waco. Particularly in the 60s and 70s, uh, early 70s, it becomes much more of a kind of interracial space. Uh, a lot of Baylor students are going over to Walker Auditorium. I mean, if you wanted to hear good live music, Walker Auditorium Yeah, I'm going to say, if you're going to hear B.B. King, then, you know, <laughs> there's nothing going to stop you from, from going to the space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love that the arts and the power of music was part of that desegregation story for Waco. I, I think this is really a continuation. Uh, the, the next place I'm going to discuss, continuation of the Cotton, um, the Cotton Palace discussion. We didn't really talk about why the Cotton Palace failed, but its last mm -hmm. year was 1930. And so that was uh, unfortunately a pretty bad year in America. That was the, the stock market collapse, beginning of the Great Depression. Cotton took a huge hit in that and uh, was really part of the um, really decline of, of cotton as a major part of our economy here because 
as we've discussed before, uh, we realized we really needed to diversify the, as a city, the city leaders did. And, and, um, so thankfully we, we've done a good job of that, but, um, that, that made the cotton palace dormant for several years, but in the uh, post-war era the, the, there was a desire really to kind of revive that, that, uh, the aura of the uh, Cotton Palace. And that was done through what we now know as Heart of Texas Coliseum. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the the vision or, you know, they were really looking at, hey, that that the expositions, you, you used it before when we started discussing Cotton Palace as a way for people to understand what the Cotton Palace was. Ironically, it became yeah. um, patterned after the Cotton Palace. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, uh, but, the, but the so, idea yeah. of so the uh, extra co-center is, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is the inheritor of that, that vision. Yeah. So it was built in uh, 1953, I believe is when it was opened. And, um, here, here's a fun little trivia fact. They had a, they had a nationwide naming contest for, uh, for the heart of Texas, uh, for the building, um, and so there was a, a lady in McGregor, Texas, Mrs. John Cousins, who won the $100 for coming up with the name Heart O Texas Coliseum. Hmm. Well, and bravo, that's, And that's no, no with F. an apostrophe. No F, yeah. Heart O Texas. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> wow. I wonder what she did with that $100. <laughs> Hopefully she got probably, to see a good she show. She probably spent it on a corn dog and some, uh, uh, you know, one ride. <laughs> I wonder what the ticket prices were at some of these price points. You know, I was looking at the the souvenir program for the auditorium and ticket prices there were from one cent to four dollars. You can get much arts and entertainment <laughs> these days for that. For that much. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I'm sure a hundred dollars was a lot of money in those days. That was yeah. it was definitely worth her submitting yeah. her suggestion. Um and just to connect the the fairgrounds to an earlier podcast mm-hmm. or a military podcast, that space, that whole area was part of the original rich field. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was, as the city built out, that land uh, remained a municipal airport until the 40s. So as you can imagine, as the city built out, there was this nice big block of land that was starting to get a city around it. And uh, that's, you know, uh, uh started getting used for, you know, Waco high, uh, eventually Waco high was built there uh, on the property and some of the other parks and amenities, but, uh, also that was a great place to put the fair. One club that, that I want to mention just cause as I was thinking about Walker auditorium is the Abraxas club. I want to make sure and mention that as well, which was kind of the Tejano club in the 1970s, uh, in Waco, Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, named after the Carlos Santana album. Uh, the Abraxas Club was a really important kind of gathering place for uh, uh, Chicano, the Chicano movement in the 1970s, and um, another lot, great live music kind of spot that that became really an important kind of social and cultural gathering place in the 70s. Um, so there's there's some places that are not buildings but public spaces. I think are worth are worth mentioning. Uh, probably a lot of people or some of our listeners have gone to uh, concerts at Indian Springs Park. There's a beautiful amphitheater. It's hard to see when you're driving by at street level, but you know if you get off in the park, there's it, it's a beautiful amphitheater that goes down. Um, um, and backed by the river. I mean, the it's river just backdrop. isn't that stunning? Yeah, I yeah. just it makes such a lovely semi-natural amphitheater and I've seen everything from the symphony to Shakespeare plays there. It's a, it makes a really nice uh, venue for all kinds of things. Yes. On a beautiful summer night sitting on the grass. It's great. And of yeah. course that's home to, there are many festivals now that flank the banks of the river. And I think festivals are one of the, one of the great activators for a place like Waco that has, for at least a chunk of the year, a good enough, you know, good climate mm-hmm. for being outdoors mm-hmm. and enjoying the outdoors. Mm-hmm. You know, the MCC has a great uh, Mosque River stage, yeah, oh, stage yes. as well. Love that space. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that was probably built in the early two thousands. You may, I don't have that. I don't remember. Um, but part of their, uh, you know, the you mentioned the, their music school and their um, commu- commercial. Music school. I mean, what hmm. what a great asset to have in our community. And then the b- ball for performing arts 
centre as well, you know, adding to the portfolio of performance spaces mm-hmm. in our community. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's here's a little hidden gem that I just I just love. You really got to go look for this. Uh, but uh, if you're going down University Parks and about uh, at the intersection with Colcord, which is pretty close to, uh, well, it's right behind the city of Waco's uh, facility where that used to be the old uh, pumping facility uh, for water out of the Brazos. Mm-hmm. Anyway, if you look off um, towards the pump house away from the river, there's a there's a little ribbon of concrete with some steps that goes up to a, 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 a rough hewn stone obelisk that's about you know ten feet tall. And you go up and look at it. There's a little sculpture of Shakespeare on it, and there's a couple of plaques on it, and one of them says. Immortal be his name, Waco Shakespeare, Shakespeare Club. Uh, it has two dates on it, 1899 and 1916. And I'm assuming 1916 is when they put the monument up and 1899 is when the club started, which coincides with the Waco Auditorium, the, ironically. Yes, that was, yeah. But uh, obviously there, there was a public space created here to, uh, to, to perform Shakespeare. And Shakespeare in the park, no less. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. And, you know, Rick, I'm going to point out that these outdoor spaces, natural air conditioning, right? <laughs> <laughs> Makes yes. it maybe a little more, yes. uh, you know, a little less controlled, a broader but yes. bandwidth of usability. Yeah. yeah. Um, wonderful. I mean, Shakespeare in the Park is definitely something that Waco lends itself to. I'm, I'm saying this out there in case someone is listening. I know that um, Wild Imaginings have um, piloted a couple of uh, Shakespeare's in the park and, yeah, I think that's a great opportunity. Well, and, and, and while we're kind of on the subject of talking about university parks in that area, uh, there, there's a bunch of art going down that road now. And I know um, you may sculptures. know a little bit about that. Why don't you share? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, um, you immediately see two different kinds of art going along um, that section that you just mentioned. One is the the animal sculptures, which were installed um, back in 2020. Um, ironically, you know, just the the um, event that we had to dedicate the sculptures and and thank the donors who contributed to those um, was, I think, a week before the lockdown for um, mm. for the pandemic. But what that meant was that immediately as soon as they were installed, they became one of the safest things for families to do together. So right from the point where people felt were you know were able to be out and about walking in socially distanced groups people were just loving those sculptures Mm -hmm. so that's thanks to um clifton and betsy robinson who've been amazing Mm, benefactors for so many things in our community but including public art and um they had that vision of having animal sculptures along the river and long story short um, they invited a number of other people to weigh in on that. And so that we ended up with something which originally was a vision to have six sculptures um, turned into 27 sculptures, thanks to the generosity of people in our community. Um, but the other sculptures, which I know people will have really noticed around the um, suspen- suspension bridge area, are the steers, branding the Brazos, and that's mm-hmm. uh, again Clifton and Betsy as the lead donors, with a number of people um, from across our community working with Doreen Ravenscroft and uh, Cultural Arts of Waco, and that is of course commemorating Waco's role as the strategic crossing of the river with the suspension bridge and its role as part of the Chisholm Trail. Right, the crossroads of Waco. There we go. So Pause for a fact, yes. <laughs> well, that we'll keep going from there. You know, give us some vision for future places and spaces that uh, I mean, you've 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 mentioned a little bit, but stuff that that uh, you guys have vision for uh, as Waco continues to to move forward. Well, and of course, right on the other side of the river was the next vision that Cultural Arts of Waco had, which was the Doris Miller Memorial. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a wonderful testament to the military history and, of course, the African-American history of mm-hmm. Waco. Um, because we have so many amazing locations, so much potential, um, Last year, we actually got a grant from National Endowment for the Arts to conduct a public art strategic planning process. So that means that now as we look forward, 
we have a really good pathway to make sure that we are doing a great job of telling some of the stories about our community when we think about public art opportunities. We're seeing such a lot of growth and flourishing, lots of new developers wanting to come in and do stuff. And often they want to know, well, what can we do that's going to be historically significant for this community? So we now have a pathway of being able to make sure that when people are interested in doing public art, there's a pathway to making sure that we're doing a great job of commemorating some of these historical gems. And then we, um, as an organization, are working uh, with City of Waco um, at feasibility for a new performing arts center. So there's actually a feasibility study that's being conducted and we're now working um, towards conceptual renderings for that. But that will be right on the river, so on University Parks and um, Franklin. So that pivot point right at the crossroads. Mm-hmm. Well, talk, speaking of statues, I'm just going to throw this in there because I walked back past today as I came here by Waco's two newest statues, which are Robert Gilbert and Barbara Walker, which a crane was putting them on their, on their pedestal uh, as I was walking over here, and those will be unveiled soon. But again, as yeah. we try to think about our representations of of what we commemorate and how we commemorate it and who's in a part of that story, uh, we need to be uh, inclusive and strategic. Well, and that's a great way of saying arts are powerful. The mm-hmm. symbols that we have in our community are really powerful. And the spaces that we create and the opportunities that we create are also powerful and emblematic. We can see through that history, looking back, the kinds of, crea- the kinds of spaces that we created have characterized the reputation of our community to the outside world. Mm-hmm. So it's really important how we do this. Okay. Well, I think that, uh, that gets us pretty tied up on uh, places and spaces and we can, we may, we may want to mention, we do, should we mention Magnolia? Uh, I mean, it seems like it's, a, an ending point with sure, the cotton sure. palace. If we talk about the, sure. The cotton yeah, palace there's, is there's this, yeah. is this extreme draw and just the, the, the draw of, of that space yeah. as an entertainment venue. Well, and especially when we think of Magnolia in the context of the spaces that we create mm-hmm. are what earns our reputation in the outside world. And one of the things that I really love about what that vision has done for Waco is, you know, I, I say to people, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but I don't think people are making that pilgrimage. And it it really is a pilgrimage that many folks who come to Magnolia mm-hmm. are making, a pilgrimage of a kind. Um, they're not coming for the expensive candles. They're coming because there is a vision cast in what Chip and Joanna have done with the TV show and with the spaces that they have created, um, which I think is threefold. It's really interesting. One is that they have done a great job of creating places where people can gather in real time and space and prioritize family time or friend time. So it's about creating invitational spaces. That's what the show does. You know, every single fixer upper is about creating a place where people can gather. And I think they've done that for Waco. Um, The second is I think there's a real vision there about how to prioritize the balance between work and family, faith, you know, all the things that we consider to be important in life. So creating spaces where we can find good balance. And the the third is the metaphor of fixing up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some ways, as we look back at Waco's history, Waco itself is the fixer upper, but then so are each of each of us, there is no one who is not themselves broken in some way. And so that um, metaphor and that visual representation of taking things that have outlived their use, repurposing them, finding new use and fresh meaning, I think is incredibly powerful for Waco's future. That might be the deepest thing that's ever been said on this podcast. It went way (laughs) deep. Yeah. That is awesome. Sorry, guys. I'll, you know, I'll come back to the surface. And air conditioning. Um, So I want to ask, just because I know you thought about this, just the reintroduction or the prospects of the reintroduction of a grand sort of event space Mm -hmm. with the Foster uh, Pavilion coming in. Just what sort of prospects does that present as a city space? You know, we can talk about it as a Baylor Mm -hmm. space. 
but, but you've thought about it from the city end. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, yeah. in any space of that kind, you know, obviously there are days when it's not going to be used for um, uh, for tournaments mm-hmm. and it does lend itself, especially to things like rock concerts, like mm-hmm. mid-sized concerts, that kind of thing. I will say that something that is per- purpose-built for sports is rarely the very best fit for things that require very high sound definition. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking... Uh, Rock concerts, perfect. That's amplification. It's engineered sound. Totally fine for that. So hopefully it will mean that we can bring in some, um, you know, some good 8,000 seater type events to Waco. That would be its sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's a potential capture of market for, you know, people that are going from Dallas, Fort Worth down to Austin or vice versa. You know, there's the whole um, kind of uh, South by um, plus circuit. Austin city limits, that kind of thing. So there's an opportunity to capture things that we can't yet do as a community. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a very unique, um, uh, there is another need over and above that. You know, I've, I've had people say to me, isn't that enough? Isn't that, you know, everything that we need? But the truth is that, you know, now we're so sophisticated at the way that we um, listen to and experience. We we want as a generation now. We expect to have fully immersive experiences, um, in a way that I think has been amplified by her. No pun intended. Um, hmm. Our our experience during the pandemic of being able to live stream anything we wanted, or um, you know, experience anything that we wanted in the comfort of our own home. But there's also a craving for in-person real experiences. So the idea of having a 2,000-seater auditorium just up from that pavilion mm-hmm. space, I think, allows us to create, you know, a portfolio of spaces that can be used not just in their own right, but also in conversation with each other. So, of course, we have the McLean Stadium as well. The idea of having things which converse Mm -hmm. between different venues in our community Mm -hmm. and with the um, convention center that allow us to bring much bigger, more visionary festivals, multi-venue experiences to Waco, I think is incredibly exciting. And then they all activate the river. I mm-hmm. I have a um, well not so secret dream because I'm about to say it, um, but uh, I definitely well, have first, a uh, right. We, we, we have you heard it here. here. We have the scoop on the Waco History <laughs> Podcast. That's awesome. Here it goes. Yeah, not so much history, but vision for the future. Um, the idea of sailgating for the arts or sailgating mm-hmm. for entertainment, where yeah. we can do live streaming. Where, you know, for example, you're out on your boat on the Brazos, um, you have a family, which you you might want, not want to do the kind of quiet thing with young kids in an auditorium space. But what you might want to do is, for example, you know, your kids are mad about ballet or mad about music. You can live stream within a geofenced area the um, the performance that's going on and then your ticket for doing that also allows you to moor up and go to the after party and meet the cast. Mm. So there are all kinds Mm. of things that I can, that we can do that I think are uh, value adds to the live experience that allow us to broaden the audience, broaden the experience, make it more adaptable for, I think a, a diverse public that wants to experience live things in a multiplicity of ways, just like we do with sports. As a guy with a kayak, I love that vision. <laughs> <laughs> I have a kayak too. Well, no, I'll be on. with. I'll be there with you. <laughs> well, and, and are you mad about kayaks? Because I think she's using some terminology that doesn't. Uh, you know, we we don't. My, when my kids are mad about something, it's not that they want to do it. So oh, they're usually yeah, mad at no, me. I so, totally, yeah, I, real, I yeah. used a Britishism. Oh, yeah, I, I, I knew what she meant. So, right. Yes, no, I say Don't mad so about in the sense of, <laughs> well, so, of being so ironically, very fond uh, of. Yeah. The vision you're throwing out there, a few, a few years back, uh, Fiona and I were both starting two organizations or part of groups that were starting two organizations yeah. at the time. Um the Greater Waco Sports Commission, and then what eventually became Creative Waco. Creative yes. Waco, yeah. And a lot of discussions at the time, remember, we'd get people in the room, and they would talk about we'd be talking about bringing more events and doing more stuff. Well, you can't do that because that's always my weekend. Or <laughs> no, 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 you're gonna have to find another. We the the whole idea was very linear. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh, we can only do one thing in Waco at a time. Yeah, I remember being told that. I remember people telling me when we arrived here that. Um, you know, if we have more than one performance on the same night, that's it. There won't be an audience for both. Yeah. And, you know, just um, three, three weekends ago, 
uh, we actually had um, four theatre performances on the same weekend. We now have seven theatre companies in Waco, wow. which is extraordinary. Um, four performances one weekend, and every single one of them was sold out. Wow, fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. that... that that mindset has changed because people are thinking mm-hmm. about how to layer these events together, how to have more of a festival mindset. Yeah. Um, clustering. Clustering. You it's, know, a, it's an economic reality right, for Waco Right. Yeah. If we're going to have a vibrant downtown, there's got to yeah. be a lot of different things going on. And that's, I think, the beauty of the Foster Pavilion being downtown mm-hmm. is going to provide a big chunk of that connectivity. Well, I'm thinking of Waco as a destination and as a in a joined up way. One of the things I love about the fact that the Sports Commission and Creative Waco was started at the same time is that it really allowed some of that joined up thinking mm-hmm. because there are, I don't know anybody that only likes doing one thing. <laughs> right. Most people, most families have a multiplicity of interests. And so we want to create an exciting, livable place that has all those things. And then that takes us right back to the Cotton Palace again yeah. and to all these venues and spaces we've just been talking about because they really did offer that. Waco has always been a place that has offered a multitude of different kinds of arts and cultural experiences, probably right from the powwows. <laughs> Well, we're going to end yeah. where we began. That's right. Rick, Sounds you invited good. the right person. Man. Thank you for inviting Fiona. Thank She's you so much. This has been us. so much fun. I've learned yeah. a ton. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.